I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, it's Tamara. So today I want to take you back to July, to the beginning of a truly bizarre political story that's still playing out in Japan. It all started with the assassination of one of the country's most powerful leaders, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. It happened in broad daylight, while Abe was giving a speech at a campaign rally outside of a train station in the city of Nara, two days ahead of an election. He was a few minutes into his speech when someone shot him from behind, twice. Seconds later, in a dramatic moment caught on video, members of the Japanese Secret Service tackled the suspect, a 41-year-old named Tetsuya Yamagami. Guns are tightly controlled in Japan, so this whole thing was shocking. Then we started to get more details. It turns out the gun was homemade. Sources telling Japanese media the suspect test-fired the homemade gun in preparation for the murder. Investigators say that gun is about 15 inches long, capable of shooting six projectiles at a time, and was made from two metal pipes taped together, similar to a shotgun. Officials say they see... And even though this happened right before an election, the suspect said it wasn't about that. He claims his actions were not politically motivated, but were driven by personal reasons. He says he killed Abe because of his secret links to a religious cult that made his mother go bankrupt. Which cult is that group, which critics often call a cult, was the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification, also known as the Unification Church. You may know its followers as Moonies. Since that day, the church has been dominating headlines in Japan. People who used to belong to the church have been coming forward and telling stories about how it left them in financial ruin. People like Sayuri Ogawa, who spoke at a press conference in October using a pseudonym. From early on, I was told uh, coerced to, worship, to attend worship services, to read doctrination. Uh, books uh, told that I was not allowed to engage in relation, romantic relationships and I will fall into damnation uh, to hell. Ogawa said before she finally left, her family gave the church a lot of their money, including her earnings, and that the stress of following the church's teachings landed her in the hospital. During my stay at the hospital, my uh, mother, on her own, uh, at her own discretion, uh, pulled out all my money without my permission. After leaving the hospital, returning to Japan, I, I went through a further psychological breakdown and uh, essentially became a shut-in. 
When the Japanese government opened up a hotline for complaints about the church, it was flooded with stories like Sayuri's. And as a result, they started investigating its fundraising tactics. But it's not only that that's come under scrutiny. It's also the church's deep ties to Japanese politics, especially the ruling Liberal Democratic Party. Nearly half of its lawmakers had some kind of connection with it. So what is the Unification Church? How did it get so embedded in the Japanese government? And what does this all reveal about Japan's relationship with religion and spirituality? I'm Tamara Kendacker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Koichi Nakano is a political scientist with Sophia University in Tokyo, and he's been following the story. Hi, Koichi. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Before we get into the political ties between the Unification Church and the Japanese government, I want to just get a better sense of what the church is all about. And so can we start with its origins? Where did this organization come from? Right. So it's... um new religion, I mean, by that I mean that it was a religion that was created after the Second World War in Korea amidst the chaos in the peninsula after the um, end of the Japanese imperial rule and uh, the uh, Korean War that ensued very soon after that. And uh, the founder of the religion, Moon Sumyum, was at one point held captive in North Korea uh, by the communists. He was sent to North Korea's Hungnam death camp. According to a later FBI report, the charge was bigamy. In his book, Divine Principle, which lays out his theology, Moon says he endured suffering unimagined by anyone in history. He was tortured. Uh, he then somehow found his way uh, to South Korea, uh, where his church started to grow supposed to be rooted in Christianity, but of course the mainstream churches disown the Unification Church entirely, and um, I guess it is a very different religion that some people would call a cult. And what do the followers of the church actually believe? How would you describe its ideology? Right, so its ideology is uh, very much like uh, the world as a fight between good and evil, and uh, uh, communism is a very clear-cut case of uh, Satan. It, you know, it's a very strongly anti-communist uh, religion, and it seems that that was also the reason why it ended up becoming so successful. Uh, the uh, military uh, rulers who governed South Korea after the Korean War, and apparently also the uh, Korean version of the CIA, known as the KCIA, uh, have come to established ties and offered some protection to the uh, Unification Church. And mm-hmm. they decided to sort of, rather than to suppress it and to eradicate it, to make use of it for some of the activities that the KCIA itself was uh, engaged with. So anti-communism is a big part of what they believe. And then how is it connected to Christianity? Like, what is the overlap there? And do you know much about that? Well, uh, you know, Moon Somyeon, of course, claims to be the Messiah. He's um, 
in that sense, you know, following in the footsteps of Christ. And he and his uh, wife, who's now the leader uh, of the religion after, you know, Moon passed away, they claim to represent the, uh, the parents uh, in this world. So there is this sort of patriarchal vision of Christianity in some ways that is being sort of twisted and overblown, but made use of. The King of Kings and the officiators for the blessing ceremony, the true parents of heaven, earth and humankind, the Reverend Dr. Sun Myung Moon and Dr. Hak Chahan Moon will now enter. Yeah, and, and some of what I've read, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what he preaches or what he used to preach was that Adam and Eve committed the original sin of selfish love and uh, he's this Messiah who's going to bring his followers to salvation because he was married, unlike Jesus, and raised the ideal family. Is that, is that right? Uh, yeah. No, there is that very bizarre thing which uh, is at the background of how the uh, religion was uh, spread and very much became a keystone for the Unification Church in Japan. I'm not quite sure exactly when they started, or Moon started to develop this theory, but he had this idea that Korea is an Adam country, Japan is an Eve country, and uh, as an Eve country, Japan has to continue to atone for its uh, past sin which was the colonization of Korean Peninsula, which is compared to the original sin. And uh, in order to you know, make up for that sin, the Japanese, according to this dogma, uh, is supposed to continue to offer all it has to Korea as another country. Uh, that also kind of explains why 70% of the church's funding comes from Japan, right? Because they use this idea that Japanese people have to atone for colonization by donating to the church. Yes, exactly. You mentioned earlier that the church is often referred to as a cult, and I've seen it described as a cult a lot. Well, I think it has to do with the fact that, at least in Japan, where, as you said, you know, the church really relies very heavily for the finances uh, for its worldwide activities, it's been known and uh, it's been talked about quite a great deal that the followers of the Unification Church that try to recruit new members or that try to make what's called spiritual sales for fundraising, they often hide their identity. You know, a story that is often repeated is that initially, you know, there was some this nice person who was very sympathetic and who'd uh, ask the person, the target, to, you know, are you from the Unification Church? They would flat out deny. And so they are kind of using deception. And uh, over time, then they start to reveal their identity. But by that time, quite often, it's really too late for the person to get out of it. Right. I also wanted to ask you about the church's mass marriage ceremonies and sex rituals. That's another thing that the Unification Church is known for. Can you tell me a bit about that and, you know, what these things entail and sort of what is the church's 
preoccupation with sex. I mean, before even, you know, the Unification Church took the current form and became kind of, you know, successful, quote-unquote, uh, Moon was arrested by the Korean authorities at times for engaging in allegedly orgies and stuff. And so there was this fascination about the you know, supernatural power that Moon Sumin has. And, you know, through sex, he was apparently trying to sort of spread the religion as well and to somehow ordain or anoint the followers. And um, eventually he came up with this idea of mass wedding and he would um, give blessings uh, this is the highest form of blessings for the followers to have the marriage arranged. It's not even a blind date, but very often the matched couple come to know each other only like the day before the mass wedding takes place. Before the couples know it, the big day arrives. Brides and grooms from all over the world line up for buses. So where are you from? Cote d'Ivoire. Cote d'Ivoire. And where are you from? Japan. You can speak Japanese? No. Okay. And how's your French? No, no French. How long have you known each other? Three days. You met three days ago. Uh huh. You have a lot of faith. So they do that, and then they also have detailed instructions about the first night when you know they they lose virginity because they're supposed to be virgins. Also, there is a ritual that involves like spanking your partner. They're given a kendo stick, and the woman has to bend over, and the man hits her three times as hard as he can with the kendo stick. Then the woman turns around, and she beats the man, and it's the same thing. There is also this twist that's connected to this Adam and Eve theory. And very often, you know, Japanese women, who are, of course, you know, Eves, if you like, and uh, they are being paired with a Korean man. And in Korea, from what I understand, sometimes they don't even really, you know, try to convert people to join, but it's more like matchmaking agency. So like in the rural areas, poor farmers who have a hard time getting married and having a wife to help with the household chores and uh, farming, uh, they join the church because they have been promised that they'll get a Japanese bride. Wow. The guy who allegedly shot and killed Shinzo Abe said that he did it because the church had basically bankrupted his mother and Abe is connected to the church. But his mother's story is actually quite common. And a lot of people are speaking out about how their families have landed themselves in a lot of debt, making huge donations to the church. So this is a problem in Japan specifically. How do they convince people to hand over so much of their money? Right. Yeah, so they often target women and uh, vulnerable women who have... Uh, lived through great misfortune, like the loss of a child or, you know, abusive husband or families falling apart, great illness. And then they do a lot of research and sometimes they gather that kind of very personal information uh, while they are still hiding the identity. And uh, then they, they also make a list of what the kind of assets that the target has. And so, yes, the uh, mother of the suspect who assassinated the former Prime Minister Abe had, uh, you know, lost her husband through suicide. 
There was also, I think there was a brain tumor that the first son developed, which led to surgery that resulted in a loss of one eye, you know, eyesight and you know, so there are these, you know, real misfortunes. And then uh, I guess, you know, she found some sort of relief or consolation in this idea that she's been saved by the church and giving away all the family fortune because they were originally a fairly wealthy family. The church has acknowledged that the suspect's mother, who had been a long-time member of the group, donated nearly $700,000, including life insurance and real estate, to the authorities. It said it later returned about half of it at the request of the suspect's uncle. But, you know, she gave away so much of the family fortune that uh, Yamagami, who was apparently a rather smart kid, couldn't even go to the university upon graduation from high school. Uh, there are many stories uh, that seem to collaborate this kind of pattern of predatory fundraising practices. How prevalent is this issue in Japan? Do we have a sense of the numbers at all? Well, it's hard to know exactly, of course, how many followers there are today. But in elections, they are reportedly able to move around 60 to 80,000 votes. So maybe... That's pretty significant. Yeah, it is pretty significant, you know, when you think about them as rather kind of dedicated members of the church who take orders from the church. And of course, there is also a lot of attention today in the media about the second generation, the children uh, who are born into these families. And, you know, they, they were church members at birth without really having any choice. For example, the woman that we we heard from who did that press conference, um, Sayuri Ogawa. She, she's someone who was born into the church and ended up defecting. My parents married when they were around about 20 years old, joined the church when they were around 20 years old and married as a result of a prearranged mass wedding. I was born to them and raised as a second generation believer of the church. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We're in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, I mean, I understand why fundraising works really well in Japan and why it's so effective there, but how did the church end up having such a big presence there in the first place? Right, so in the late 1950s already, soon after its founding in South Korea, Moon seeks contacts and entry into Japan, of course, also for fundraising purposes and spreading the religion. And in the 1960s, you know, in the context of the Cold War, and you had very conservative, you know, politicians in office, in particular, uh, the former Prime Minister Nobusuke Kishi. And Kishi is Abe's grandfather. 
he got to enter Japan and get some political protection as a fellow anti-communist fighters, they got the conservatives' backing in entering Japan. Is it just about anti-communism or are there other ideological connections between the church and conservative parties like the LDP? So basically anything that is against their versions of strongman domination and they brand them as communists. You know, they still talk about anti-communism and they, uh, in fact, these days they particularly target feminists as communists. And it doesn't matter whether they are actually communists or not. You know, the fact that they are, in the church's view, anti-family, working on the destruction of the traditional family, uh, the patriarchy, that's enough of an offense to be labeled as communism. I'm curious, what did you think when you heard the Unification Church being brought up in the context of this assassination? Were you shocked? What was your reaction? Yeah, no, it was uh, quite shocking. Uh, It was quite shocking and uh, it brought a spotlight on the Unification Church and what it has been doing uh, when it was being less visible from the general Mm -hmm. public over the past decades. And as we learn more about the close ties between the uh, ruling party, the Liberal Democratic Party, and uh, particularly its right wing, headed by the deceased Mr. Abe, the extent of the influence, but also the uh, mutual sort of, you know, mutually beneficial relationship uh, was quite shocking. Talk about that a little bit. So since Abe's killing, uh, the LDP has been going through a huge reckoning, investigating ties to the church within its ranks. Their profile. That's caused a great deal of public dissatisfaction towards the government. Uh, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's approval rating has continued to sink uh, consecutively during the process. Tell me a bit about what's been revealed over the last few months. Initially, the government uh, was very reluctant to get into that idea and so tried to sort of, you know, brush it aside and uh, make light of it. But then freelance journalists, scholars, foreign press started to look into the matter and ties were revealed. And indeed, Mr. Abe was offering a video message uh, that could be seen by everybody on YouTube to a gathering of a front organization of the Unification Church. And then there are more revelations about the ministers, about the powerful faction bosses and a large number of ruling party politicians having some kind of ties. 50%, right? 50% of the LDP yeah, yeah. And, uh, turned out has ties to the, the right. church. And of course, you know, maybe even that is a rather conservative count because, of course, very many people are trying to hide. And there are also some cases in which the church was hiding its own identity to try to get close to a politician. And so there are times when the politicians were unaware or caught off guard or were careless in agreeing to an interview uh, on a media outlet of the church. The ties seem to be in terms of staff support. So election Mm. campaign staff provided by the Unification Church Competent secretaries were being trained through a special program that the church operated over decades. Uh, there seem to be also certain numbers of uh, local level politicians who are actually you know, followers of the church. 
also. So the ruling LDP has not really gone into looking at the local level politicians because the ties could be just so extensive that they wouldn't be able to keep track. And so if we had to summarize the implications of these ties between the LDP and the church, essentially it's that the church provided personnel staff throughout the years for politicians maybe working on election campaigns, and they were able to help mobilize voters, right? Because of yeah, followers of the church would vote a certain way. And then in terms of how the church benefited, is it that the LDP having their support kind of boost the church's credibility? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things, but one is definitely that these ties to the politicians of the ruling party who'd come to the gatherings and who talk nicely in their meetings were a way that was very helpful to convince the followers and possible new recruits that this is a legitimate organization, that this is a legitimate religion that's been so close to powerful people, to the government, and being appreciated very highly uh, by the ruling party politicians. But there's also seemed to be, of course, you know, it's a chicken and egg question, so it's hard to say which one came first, but having a shared, quote-unquote, anti-communist ideology, they agree on lots of policies on the right of the political spectrum. So opposition to gender equality, you know, the uh, LGBTQ equality um, issues or uh, remilitarization of Japan, revising the constitution, all these things, they support each other and they coordinate as they try to get the upper hand in the public debate. Now the government is investigating the church's practices in this probe that they launched a few weeks ago. What could come of that investigation? Well, it's hard to know because, of course, you know, this kind of probe has rarely been used. And so the church is supposed to come back with answers, maybe even this month. And uh, depending on the you know, results in terms of its organization, its governance structures and its activities, its finances, the government can ask the court to deprive the church of the status of religious organization. And um, that would be a very big blow to the church. The investigation could lead to a dissolution of the church under the religious corporation's law that would take away the tax-exempt religious organization status from the group. But that's also why a lot of people are unsure whether that's actually going to happen. Maybe, you know, it is more like a window dressing opportunity for the government to say that, oh, we did everything we can, but the independent court decided not to deprive the church of its religious status. And so, well, you know, what past has passed and now we move on. And what has the church's response been to this investigation? Um, well, they have been very rather combative. And um, even before the probe was started, you know, they started to sue 
journalists and even academics who are accusing the church for various things. And they have also held unapologetic press conferences several times. We would like to strongly condemn the fake news and abusive language disseminated by the heartless media, which, as hate speech, encourages religious discrimination, undermines the rights of individuals, and, if anything, violates freedom of religion. That didn't seem to go very well with the viewers, but I guess, you know, they seem rather unrepentant and they to their stories that these are individuals who happen to be the followers of the church who got involved in that. We have nothing to do with that as a church. We don't know, you know, why are you saying that to us? That kind of thing. So because I think, you know, it really goes to the heart of the church. Losing Japan's side of the church is going to be fatal for its worldwide activities. And so I guess they really do want to make sure that you know, they can get away with the home free uh, from the current crisis. And, and the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Koichi, most people in Japan don't identify as religious, but we see through this story some strong ties between religion and the state, obviously. Does religion actually play more of a role in Japanese society than we might assume? Yeah, no, that's a very good point because, in fact, the uh, extent of the influence of the church surprised us all in Japan as well. It's said that only about one in four Japanese uh, admit that they are active in one religion or another. So another three-quarters of Japanese are supposedly non-religious. But, you know, it's not the first time that a certain religion draws public attention because of its ties with the power, state power. And the background of that is to do with the fact that since the first pass-to-post system was introduced to Japanese elections, uh, lower house elections, in the uh, mid-1990s, the turnout has continued to drop quite a bit. And uh, these days, the turnout is only slightly above 50%. So in a situation in which about half of the voters abstain, you know, if you get to mobilize, maybe some of those 25% of the people who identify themselves as having a religion, well, that could lead to rather significant results. So maybe they are also disproportionately represented in Japanese politics because of the apathy, the growing apathy of the you know, general voters. This was so fascinating. Thank you so much. I could ask you a million more questions, but I know we have to let you go. <laughs> I really appreciate right. it. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producers are Joyta Shangupta and Ashley Mack, and our sound designer is Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Locos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. 
If you like this episode, take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.